Well, good morning, church. So good to see your faces this morning on this beautiful Sunday. Amen. Amen. We have a few announcements this morning before we get started. Hallelujah. So tomorrow, we'll be having our Zoom prayer meeting at 7 p.m. There will be an email link sent out tomorrow. So if you'd like to join us for the uh, Zoom prayer. Um, and also, I had somebody come up to me and say, you know, Pastor, I'd like to join on the prayer, but I don't have a computer. There's no way for me to get on there. If that's the case, let me know, and we will take care of that. And uh, we'll find a way so you can get on there and pray with us at 7 p.m. Monday. Youth group will be this, wait, wait not Wednesday. Matt, is it uh, Thursday now? Awesome. You, youth group this Thursday at 7 p.m. Zoom, correct? Okay. So this Thursday, I know it says Wednesday, but they are changing it now from Wednesday to Thursday nights um, at 7 p.m. So write that down. How many youth do we got in the house? Do we have any youth here? Give it up for the youth, guys. Come on. Yeah. Awesome. Joy Christmas Carol sing-along will be Saturday, December 19th, uh, 6.30 to 7.30 here at the church. And the whole church is invited. So you don't have to be um, a senior. Anybody is welcome to come and sing Christmas songs. Amen? Amen. Uh, Christmas Eve service. We are planning on having two Christmas Eve services, December 24th. Obviously, right? Uh, 5 p.m. and 6.30 uh, p.m. So two different services. So pick one, and we'll hope to see you there. It's going to be a really good time. Amen. All right. Well, I believe that's all the announcements we have. Um, Let's all stand for the offering. Amen. going to get ready to uh, worship God with song and with our um, finances this morning. So let's all bow our head. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful morning. Uh, We thank you for family. We thank you for friends. And we thank you for the first day of Advent. As so many years ago, Many were preparing for this coming that Isaiah spoke of. And Lord, um, we remember uh, as you came the first time, and now we are also preparing for your second coming, Lord. But this morning we worship you and we thank you for the gift you've given us of salvation, the gift you gave as you sent your son. And this morning, we not only worship you with song, but we want to worship you with what you ask of us. And that is to give our tithe and offering. And Lord, I just want to pray a blessing upon those this morning who step out in faith and give uh, of their 10%. 
and beyond, Lord. Bless their gift. Bless what they have left, Lord. <laughs> Stretch it. Make it go for miles spiritually. Um, all the worries of bills, especially during this Christmas time, Lord. I pray, God, that we would trust you more than we trust in ourselves and trust in you more than we trust in the economy and our job. Let us be faithful. And I rebuke the devourer. We rebuke the lie of the enemy that want to tell your children to not trust or to, to, to hold back. We cast it out in Jesus' name, the blood of Jesus over this offering as we, as we receive it this morning. We thank you, God. Hallelujah, we thank you. In Jesus' precious name, and all God's children said, amen. Amen. Again, church, if you're watching online, we want to say thank you for your faithfulness um, as you've been giving uh, uh, in the mail or online. Thank you so very much. We so appreciate it. But most importantly, God sees. Amen. Brother, let's, let's sing out this song. Hallelujah. Welcome, everybody. Who's ready to worship? All right. Clap your hands with me. Here we go. Here we go. Hark the herald angels sing Glory to the newborn King Peace on earth and mercy mild God and sinners reconcile. Nations rise of the skies with angelicals proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn.
sing glory to the newborn King. Open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the front gates, the mighty river flowing from your heart. Feeling every part of our praise, yeah. this day we've gathered in your name calling out to you your glory like a fire awakening desire will burn our hearts with truth and you're the reason we're here and you're the reason we're singing
How's everybody doing? Amen. God is so good. Let's lift our hands to our Lord, to our King. Let's lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Amen.
take me past the outer courts and through the holy place past the brazen altar Lord I want to see your face pass me by the crowds of people and the priests to sing your praise I hunger and thirst for your righteousness but it's only found in one place take me in to the holy of holies take me in by the blood of the lamb take me in to the holy of holies and take the cold cleanse my lips here I am and take the cold cleanse my lips here I am and take me past the outer courts and through the holy place past the brazen altar Lord I want to see your face me by the crowds of people and the priests to sing your praise. I hunger and thirst for your righteousness, but it's only found in one place. Take the call. 
Sharon, could you please come up? So today is the first candle, which is purple, symbolizes hope. Um, sometimes it's called the prophecy candle in remembrance of the prophets, especially Isaiah, who foretold the birth of Christ. It represents the expectation, anticipation of the coming Messiah. So, Kenny, I'll give you this. You can go ahead and light the first candle. So you push up. Yeah. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the deep darkness. A light has dawned. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government. And peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Thank you. Let's sing out that chorus one more time, church, knowing that Jesus Christ not only came, but is coming again for his church. Amen. And take me in to the holy of holies. And take me in by the blood of the Lamb. And take me in to the holy of Take the coal, cleanse my lips, here I am. And take the coal, cleanse my lips, here I am. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for being here this morning. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your gift. Lord, we just ask, God, that your hand be upon your word this morning as it is preached. Uh, we thank you um, for your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would challenge us this morning. Show us something new. Reveal something to us, Lord. Uh, revelation, I pray. A blessing upon our speaker this morning. And uh, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So before um, our brother comes up, I just want to say it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege um, as this... Uh, this wonderful, beautiful family um, has, has accepted us as a church and uh, my wife and I um, and my family. And I so appreciate him and his wife uh, 
for those who don't know, he used to be the pastor uh, years ago in, uh, in Carson City um, at the Nazarene Church there. So without further ado, uh, let's welcome Don Levy as he takes the stage. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Carlos. Um, just so you know a little bit about me, I um, grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, attended Point Loma, Nazarene Theological Seminary, became an ordained uh, minister in Church of the Nazarene and served uh, for about 12 or 13 years, the last part of which was in uh, Carson City, as was mentioned. And then after that, I was uh, on staff in a different denomination as an administrator and teacher in a Christian school. Um, and when I resigned that, there comes a point in life when junior high kids... And it was better for me to resign than for kids to die. So, um, and after that, I uh, have a business that I, I uh, make some things and sell them at craft shows. Um, and uh, the craft season has ended. I never really got started this year. I want to thank the uh, Emperor of Nevada for that. Um, Pastor Carlos asked me in August if I would preach on this Sunday, and I thought, well, that will give me enough time to prepare. Uh, I asked him if it mattered that the Sunday after Thanksgiving is the traditional beginning of the Christmas season, should I preach a Christmas sermon? And he said, not necessarily. And I said, oh, go. well, that's good, because I've got something I've been thinking about for about five years I'd like to talk about. Um, and it turns out, as I studied it some more, that there is a connection in it to the birth of Jesus. So maybe this is a Christmas sermon. Well, I've been studying the writings of John, his gospel, letters, and revelation. He's an interesting character and uh, quite a good writer. His writing is thematic and theological with undertones of Greek philosophy. He doesn't make Greek philosophy try to fit. He just uses a little bit to try to invite people in so that he can tell them about Jesus. It is likely that he wrote his gospel after the other three had written theirs. Their gospels were chronological and included things like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and Luke and uh, the parables in all three of the, those gospels and uh, significant miracles and other things that were unique to each one. Uh, Matthew and Luke wrote quite a bit about the birth of Jesus. So usually when we think about Christmas, we go to Matthew or Luke. John's gospel doesn't really fit. It's not chronological, but thematic. And there are some things in it that would preach, maybe, at the Christmas season. The first might be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gaveth his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was King James because that's how I memorized it when I was six. So um, that'll be the only King James reference today. This is a powerful verse about what was in the mind and heart of God when he gave to us at Christmas time his one and only Son. In that phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave 
his only son. In that phrase, it implies, it embodies, it just kind of sucks up all of the theological meaning of the coming of Christ. His incarnation, his ministries, his miracles, his suffering, his death, resurrection, and ascension. Everything that matters to us. But I'm not going to preach from that verse. Well, John opens up his gospel with one of the great passages of the Bible. This, too, has great possibilities for a Christmas sermon. John 1, 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then skipping down to verse 14. Well, we should pause for a moment and say that in the beginning was the word. The word was, uh, was his tie into Greek philosophy. There was a strong definition of the word at that time among the Greek philosophers. And he was simply saying, I want to tell you about the thing that you've been thinking about, about this word. And then he goes on and he brings the theology into it, the Old Testament, we would call the Old Testament, the scripture, that uh, the word was there at the very beginning and that he was with God and that he was God. That would have messed them up because they weren't sure that they wanted to talk about about that Um, because there was a group of them that that said well uh, we're not sure that Jesus was God and then there was another group of them that said well he might have been God but we're not sure he was a man so in verse 14 John solves that problem the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that is a great Christmas verse. And he's, John is saying that to those people who said, well, he might have been God, but he wasn't human. He's going, oh, no, he was. So we have that great theology, the dichotomy, the the problem, the thing that we struggle with, how can Jesus be both God and man at the same time? John doesn't answer that question. He just tells us that it is. Well, if you've been around the church, you've been in classes or read some things, you've probably run into this passage of Scripture. It's one of the great passages of uh, the New Testament, It's one of the great passages of Scripture that you might find in any religion anywhere. This passage takes us down to who Jesus is at the moment of his birth. But again, this is not the basis of my sermon, although it does bring up a question. I think maybe that for John, this is his thematic sentence for the whole gospel. You remember those. 
your teacher asked. No, no, your teacher didn't ask. The teacher made you write a thematic sentence. Um, at least I did when I had those kids in my class. In this thematic sentence, he emphasizes who Jesus is and that he is full of grace and truth. <clears throat> we love that word grace. Jesus comes to us full of grace. We see it throughout all of the Gospels. We, th- we see it in the writing of the Apostle Paul. We see it, it is the most important word of the New Testament. In it, it embodies the coming of Jesus and his death uh, and suffering when he died the death that we deserve to die. It's an important word. We love that word. In fact, every Sunday we'll, we'll either sing a song about that word or it'll be mentioned in a sermon. It's a great word. And then John says, and truth. Full of grace and truth. We love that grace part. We'd we'd love to focus on that all of the time, but John adds, and truth. And that's the phrase that has made me stop and think for the past five years. And truth. Why did John add, and truth? Well, I think it goes to two things. First, he had read the other three Gospels. He knew what they had written about. He knew them personally. He, um, even though Luke wasn't around at the time that Jesus was, Luke had uh, come to uh, the Holy Land with Paul, and he had conducted a number of interviews that gave him the opportunity to write not just about the Acts in the beginning of the church, but he wrote the history of of Jesus based on eyewitness accounts, which meant that he had to have talked to Mary. And if you remember the story, at the time when Jesus is on the cross, Mary and John are standing there. And he says to Mary, this is your son. And he says to John, this is your mother. And and scripture says, John wrote, and from that time on, Mary lived in my home. So if Luke interviewed Mary, he had to come to John's house. And I think John was probably home and talked to him at that time. <clears throat> so he, he knew, and I think he wrote after the, the other three, so he knew what they had uh, written. And he's thinking about that, and he's thinking Sermon on the Mount covered Mark or, uh, Luke and Matthew. Um, parables all three Gospels, all the way through it. So he makes a conscious decision, I think, to say, I'm not going to write about those things. If you want to read about those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he remembers some other sayings of Jesus and some things that they hadn't included. And he says, I want my Gospel to add to what what they have written about. And one of those things is his teaching on truth. So there's a a lot of things that he says in which he incorporates the word truth and he uses the phrase um, truly, truly, or very truly, I say unto you. Or in the, uh, I'm sorry, I have to go back to King James. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Um, 
the, that, that, and really that sounds like the word of God, doesn't it? Uh, at the time it was written, it was just truly, truly, I'm talking to you here, guys. I'm telling you some truth. The second le- reason John wrote, full of grace and truth, and uses that word and truth, has to do with the story that we find at the end of Jesus' life. A story that I think John thought about for many years, and it shaped the way he wrote his gospel. Now, to understand this story, we need to take a look at the characters. Jesus is in it. Uh, Pilate is in it. He's the governor, uh, the Roman governor in Palestine. Those two people are the principal characters in it. John's in it because he wrote about it. And if he wrote about it, he had to find out about it. And I think the way he found out about it is that there was somebody there that he knew. So the question is, who was it? I don't know for sure, but in my mind, I think it was a centurion. Now, we know about John. Um, We know that he uh, was emphasizing things that hadn't been told by other people. And so this story was something that stuck with him because he didn't find it in any of the other Gospels. Um, The other two, uh, the two Romans that I think were involved in this, um, they would have wanted it to be forgotten and put behind them. They wanted to move on. Uh, This whole episode with uh, Jesus coming to Pilate and Pilate essentially having to condemn him to death when he didn't want to do it, and the centurion having to put him to death when he didn't want to do it, they would have said, okay, we don't want to talk about this. But John had to find out from somebody, and I think he found out from the centurion. We know from the other three Gospels that there was a centurion that had sent a uh, messenger, a servant, to Jesus, and he was a, a ways away. And when he got there, he said to Jesus, my master, and he gave him this, his name and the centurion, um, request that you provide healing for his servant that is sick at his home. And Jesus said, uh, kind of indicated, well, okay, let's go there. And the, the servant said, no. My master, the centurion, said, and in Scripture it, it adds kind of in parentheses, he was a believer. He said, if you say the word, he will be healed. So Jesus said the word, and when the servant went back, they uh, asked him, when did, when did Jesus say that? And he told him, and he said, well, that was the hour that he got better. Um, so there was this centurion. And uh, I think, Scripture doesn't tell us. I'm just guessing. Somebody had to tell John the story, and I don't think Pilate did. Somebody had to be there. At the time of uh, the Passover Festival, uh, they estimate that uh, Jerusalem would swell to somewhere between one and two million people. There was no purpose having a centurion and his garrison of a hundred out where nobody was if everybody had come to town. So I'm sure that, that at this time and at other festivals, they just knew the Roman garrisons would, would move into Jerusalem to try to stop anything that was going to happen. So the centurion was there, my guess. There are two people that were there that we know about, Jesus, and we know about him, and the other is Pilate. He is 
Oh, wait. Let me back up. Um, one other word about John. Is that to, our, to really understand who John is, you have to understand that, that he worked initially as, a, um, as an agent for a fish company. It's called Zebedee and Sons Fish. <laughs> and uh, was the, their motto was, we catch them, we dry them, we deliver them, you eat them. <laughs> it was before really good advertising, but they, you know, it was catchy. Um, and because of that, because he represented this company, he made friends with people all over that area. I think that every time there was a festival or a, a feast day, Passover, Pentecost, others, that um, they went to Jerusalem. And on the way, they talked to people and they brought their cart full of fish, dried fish. And they had customers in a, in a lot of places. So you kind of have to know that in order to understand that maybe that's how John initially made his, uh, established a relationship with that centurion. He may have sold fish to him. Uh, and, and this little part of the story will show up again. <clears throat> uh, Pilate, <clears throat> as the Roman governor, he's been assigned to this job by the emperor. His job is twofold. Collect taxes, keep the peace. And, uh, and they were pretty ruthless about both things. We want the money, and we don't want the insurrection. Pilate was good at what he did. To, to do that, he had to have information. You don't stop insurrections at the small level if you don't know what's going on. So I think he paid all of his tax collectors, he paid his, his uh, centurions and other soldiers for information. People probably had gotten to the point where they knew, if I know something, I can sell the information to them. Um, Pilate was informed. I think that by the time that uh, Jesus has coming to Jerusalem for this last time, that Pilate already knows about his sermons, his miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, when John says that the people said, let's make Jesus the king, and Jesus walked away from it. I think Pilate knew that before he showed up. I think Pilate knew about the raising of Lazarus, which was a week or two weeks before uh, this uh, this event. Pilate knows about the uh, triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. He got somebody, he said, explain to me what, was, what were they saying, what was going on, and they said, it fulfills prophecy, prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, the king that is going to restore Israel in the kingdom of David. Pilate's going, okay, maybe we need some more guys. We need some more soldiers. He's not really sure what's happening. He hears the stories about what happened in the uh, overthrowing of the uh, tables in the temple. He, uh, he's heard about Jesus' confrontations with the religious leaders every day that week. He's heard about <clears throat> all of these things, 
he even comes up to the point of he heard about his informants brought him news. The temple authorities have sent guards and they're going to arrest Jesus. And they've gone up on the Mount of Olives. There's a place up there where he is. Pilate probably told him, tell me what's going on. And they bring him down and they bring him in. And Pilate knows everything. So by the time Jesus appears before Pilate, it's not a surprise. He knows what's going on. He uh, probably knows what's in the hearts of those uh, men that are running the Sanhedrin and are the high priest. All right. So, to kind of get a start into this, we're going to head toward uh, John 18 here in a few minutes. Well, John had been asked by Jesus, along with two others, to join him in prayer in the garden. John fell asleep. He's awakened by the sound of the mob entering the garden. He's awakening. He's groggy. He looks up. And he sees Peter drawing his sword and uh, going in after the servant of the high priest. He saw Jesus calm the crowd. He saw Judas give the kiss to Jesus' cheek. He saw the soldiers arrest Jesus. And he saw the mob surge in around it. We think, the evidence suggests that they, they took a step back. All the disciples that were there, they were startled by what was happening and the size of the mob. And they just took a step back into the darkness. Then the mob begins to leave. And I think John looked at Peter and said, I'm going. And uh, Peter said, yeah, let's get in the back of the crowd. We'll just follow him in. So they walked down the Mount of Olives, the same path that Jesus had taken on the triumphal entry, into the Kidron Valley, up the other side, to the gate. They opened the gate, and at that point, I think John and Peter started making their way toward the front. They wanted to see what was going to happen. They take uh, Jesus to the, uh, <clears throat> the big courtyard door of the high priest. The doors open and the mob begins to fill in and Peter and John again pushing forward because they know that only so many people can get in there. John follows, gets as close as he can, sees Jesus go through the door into the meeting room that has been set up for the Sanhedrin to put Jesus on trial. John comes to the door just as it's closing and he looks in and he says, Hey, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus goes, you're the fisherman guy, aren't you? Ah, let him in. I know him. Let him in. And uh, so John comes in, and uh, then they shut the door, and Peter's stuck out in the courtyard. But the, the great thing for us is that John now is an eyewitness to everything that happened in there. So he sees what happens, and he sees it at the end, Jesus essentially condemns himself by answering the question the high priest had asked, are you the son of God? And he said, I am. And at that point, they said, then he's deserving of death. 
But they knew that they had a problem. They had several problems. And so they decided that the way to solve it was get the Romans to execute him. So they take Jesus out. It's probably very early in the, in the morning in terms of the dawn. The sun may have been coming up. Pilate knows they're coming. His informant has told them this is what's happening. Pilate's waiting for him. They bring him to uh, Pilate's palace and they stop. And maybe one of the priests went out with a staff, drew a line and said, our side, their side. If you cross this line, you're going to be considered unclean for the Passover and for the Sabbath. So they stood out there. They had gathered up a crowd from out of the courtyard and wherever they could get them. And they had been telling them, we want this man crucified. And they had got them into the chant, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate comes out and he says, what are you doing here? They said, we have a man who is guilty. Pilate says, I know who the guy is. I know about him. He does not deserve death. Well, he's broken our law. If he's broke, Pilate says, if he's broken your law, then you take him and you kill him. And I said, no, we can't do that. We are under your rules that say we cannot execute people, only you can. You have to execute this man. Pilate says he's not guilty. Then he says, <clears throat> I want you to bring him in to me. Um, he turns. I think he looks at the crowd, maybe raises his hand. They kind of get, get quiet. He goes, I got to think about this. And he turns and he goes back in. And this is where we will begin. Chapter 18, verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? I think that Pilate on the way in had told his centurion, get this guy. I think that the centurion soldiers were stationed behind fences or walls or someplace so that if they were needed, they could rush out and stop an insurrection, stop the rioting. He says to the centurion, bring him in. Pilate <coughs> says to him, so Pilate goes in and he sits down on his chair of authority and he brings Jesus in. And Jesus, now he's sitting above Jesus. He's sitting, Jesus is standing. This is the position of power. And he says to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now this hasn't been mentioned before. Pilate knows that this is the, the real issue here. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. 
And Pilate already knew that his servants had tried to fight and Jesus had stopped them. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, here comes Christmas. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Well, that, that's a Christmas sermon for you. The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Pilate, all authority, all power, sitting in his chair of power, looking down on Jesus, having all of the power of Rome behind him, knows that truth is formed by power. If you have the power, if you have the position, if you have the status, you can shape truth into whatever you want it to be. He had seen it happen in Rome. So Pilate looks at him and says, you're talking about something you don't understand, Jesus. And he says, I love it. The scripture says he retorted. What is truth? With this, he went out again. I think Pilate at that point said, he doesn't doesn't get what being a king is all about. And Jesus was probably thinking, Pilate, you don't understand what being God is all about. (laughs) And uh, so Pilate is frustrated and I think he's frustrated to the point where he is now going to try to figure out to resolve this problem quickly. He's going to either get rid of Jesus, send him back to the crowd, or he's going to crucify him. But because he knew what was happening that day, and because he knew that typically on the Passover he would free a prisoner He had said earlier to one of his men, who do we have in jail? And they started listening. He goes, no, I want who's the worst guy we have in jail? Well, there's a guy, Barabbas. He's killed people. He's murdered people. He's an insurrectionist. Nobody likes him. Romans, Greeks, Jews, no one likes him. Pilate says, bring that guy. So, Pilate steps back out onto his porch. The uh, Jewish people are still out there, and as soon as he comes out, the chant starts up again, crucify, crucify. They bring Barabbas out. They bring Jesus out. And he says to the crowd, I find no fault. I find no basis for a charge against him. But 
it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No, they shouted. Give us Barabbas. It went on for a while, and Pilate realized that as much as he did not want to execute Jesus in order to stop the crowd and the potential insurrection riot, he orders his men, take him, flog him, prepare him for crucifixion. All right, now we'll figure out where I am in my notes. Yeah. All right, let's take a look at, I don't know, how much time do I have? Yeah, where are Okay. That's, I was sharing with Pastor Carlos, the last time I preached a sermon from a pulpit was about 10 years ago. I've taught a lot of classes and things since then. Um, let's take a look at three other passages of scripture that tell us a little bit more about truth. So if Jesus' purpose, the reason why he was born, is to tell us about truth, then let's look at this thing that happened in chapter 8. Jesus is talking to a crowd, and it says it's a group of Jews. Some of them are believers, and some of them are not. Some of them are those that have said, we think that Jesus is right. We think that he is the Messiah. Uh, they probably struggled saying that. They weren't sure. But they were believers in Jesus and what he was saying. Then there were others who said, we don't agree. We are Jews who believe in, the, in what today we would call the Old Testament, the Torah. He seems, Jesus seems to be taking us in a different direction. So there's two groups here. <clears throat> and in the first group, we get that great phrase, or great sentence, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We, we hear that quite, in fact, I heard it last week on the news. Somebody said they, they had decided that their particular position in politics and in the garbage that's going on these days and they had said something, and they just looked in and it said, you know, it is the truth, and, if, and it will set you free. <laughs> and I'm thinking, no, that's not exactly the quote. So let's read the whole thing. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I'm not sure that the fellow that was saying that on TV the other day was strictly a follower of Jesus saying, let's follow Jesus. But that's what Jesus is saying. So when you run into that phrase, just remember that it is a statement made for believers. Then in um, verses 44 to 47, he said, 
Well, they, they make the argument, our father is Abraham. And Jesus saying, no, I think you're missing it here. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, here's what God says. The reason that you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. There is in this world the way of evil and sin and destruction, anti-God lies and deception. When this evil gains power, what can we do? Go back to the the other part of chapter 8 that we read. If you trust in Jesus, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It really does raise the question, who are you going to follow? Because I was at craft fairs for every weekend in September and October at Apple Hill, I talked to a lot of different people. And finally, you know, stay off of politics. It was before the election, all of that. And finally, I came to the conclusion, sometimes you just have to put your head down and trust Jesus. Because in the end, all of that other stuff will go away. All right, the last part I want to talk about, the third thing, as I, I was thinking about this, I wonder if truth really mattered to John and he thought about it for all those years and this story is only unique to him. I think he thought about it for all those years. And he thought about writing his gospel where he put a lot of emphasis on that idea of the truth. And I, so I said to myself, when does John first use that phrase? And I think John thought about that too. And he thought about, when did I hear Jesus say this first? And it goes all the way back to chapter 1. When Jesus was being introduced to John's followers, his disciples, and they were changing from followers of John, the Baptist, to followers of Jesus. And it's in that context that something happens. Uh, Jesus had decided to leave the Jordan River and return to Galilee. As he was leaving, he saw Philip and said, follow me. Philip found Nathanael and said, we have found him, the one promised by the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael is not impressed by Jesus' city, Nazareth. And he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like, for those of you who live in Sparks, could anything good? We won't go there. Um, <clears throat> so, Philip has talked to Nathaniel. Jesus sees Nathaniel coming, and he says, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. As in, 
I heard what you said. You don't think too highly of Nazareth, but that's okay. I know that it's from your heart. Nathaniel says, well, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree up on that hill before Philip called you. Nathaniel is amazed and declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a tree up on a hill. You will see greater things than that. All right, so he's talking to Nathaniel. And then in the Greek, the... Uh, the pronoun shifts from singular to plural, so now he's talking to all of them. And he says, Very truly, verily, verily, I say unto thee, Very truly, I tell all of you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is kind of strange. But it isn't. If you go back in Genesis, when Jacob and had his dream of the ladder, where the angels were ascending and descending, it's the same thing. Jacob was in a bad place. Jacob had been given the promise that he would be the father of, uh, of a great nation. And it hadn't happened yet, and he was running, and he had problems with his father and problems with his brother, and he gets a dream. And at that moment things change because Jacob knows I'm connected to God. Good things are going to happen. And he has 12 sons and he has, and it begins the tribes of Israel. So when Jesus says this to them, they all, all of that clicks in their mind instantly. Wow. But it's not ascending and descending on Jacob. It's on the son of man. And it was a son of man is a phrase that Jesus used and people figured out pretty quickly that he was talking about himself. So here's the thing. At Christmas, the reason Jesus was born was to tell the truth. And the first time he used the phrase, he said, you're going to see some great things. Christmas is about joy. Christmas is about possibilities. Christmas is about hope. Christmas is about hoping we can take our mask off real soon. Christmas is the coming of Jesus, who is the author of truth. Now, we like grace, and grace is good. And the truth is, truth is all about grace. It's all interconnected. So I'd encourage you, read the Gospel of John, not because it has the Christmas story in it, but because it has the truth in it. And if we will organize our lives around the truths of Jesus, we will find ourselves in, place, in the place of peace, in the place of hope, and in a place of possibilities because we are going to see greater things. Amen.
Amen. Let's bow our heads this morning. Before we dismiss. Thank you, Don, for that message. What a great way to start the uh, Christmas uh, season with a sermon like this. Amen. I could go off so much of what he said, but one thing that kind of sticks out for me um, when he talks about uh, Pilate asking um, Barabbas or Jesus and the crowd shouted Barabbas, I thought to myself, if I was there that day, who would I have been shouting? Who would have I... What side would have I stood on? And the amazing thing is, is whether I had been with Jesus or shouting with the Pharisees, he still would have died for me. And no matter where you're at this morning, in life, what you're going through, what you're feeling, there's a God in heaven who wants to give you truth. And this morning, If you don't know truth, you can know him this morning. Before it's too late. We are not promised tomorrow. I was talking to somebody the other day. They said, you know, they've been saying God's going to come back since I was a little kid. Let's say he doesn't come back for another 200 years. We are not promised tomorrow. There's a God in heaven who wants to know you personally. And if that's you this morning. With all heads bowed, all eyes closed, you say, Pastor Carlos, I would like to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to know truth. I knew truth at at one point, but I've walked away from truth. If that's you this morning, you just raise your hand. Amen. You just raise your hand. Pastor Carlos, pray for me. Amen. If you're watching online with us this morning, you want to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you've never stepped foot in this church. Um, Maybe you've come before. You say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus this morning. That is you. You pray with me. We're going to pray the sinner's prayer, and then we're going to dismiss. Just repeat after me. Dear Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me for rejecting truth, for rejecting your love, for doing it all on my own. I am sorry. Create in me a clean heart and restore your grace, your salvation in me. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand, church. Do me a favor. Before you leave, obviously with social distancing and and, and safety, uh, please, can we give our our brother another hand, please? Thank you. This is one thing I I pride ourselves in. We here at at Home Church of the Nazarene love to to give people the opportunity to come and speak, and and God uses it in a very mighty way. So um, the Bible says be ready in in, in and out of season. So... Um, if you get a tap on the shoulder, just know it's not for me. It's from God. So be ready. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for today. 
we thank you for keeping us safe and all those, Lord, who couldn't make it this morning. Um, we just ask your hand be upon them, Lord, and upon what they're going through. We cast out sickness. Lord, we pray you give them the strength, Lord God, to recover quickly, uh, that they may be in your house and go, go throughout their life. And uh, we just pray for health, Lord. And um, we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed today.